2. And today I'm going to be wrapping up our series entitled 101. And 101 has really been a series about learning some of the basics of Christianity and just taking a step back and, and strolling through what it means to be, what it, what it means to follow Christ, what it means to be a believer. And, uh, and so if you think of 101 like a college freshman class, an orientation class, um, everything that happens after, the, after that, every advanced class, 201, 301, when you get into the real heavy stuff, you have to have a strong foundation of 101 first. And so 101 is always a prerequisite. And so we've been walking through some 101 level, um, I guess, topics so that we can understand what it means to, to, to be a, a worshiper, what it means to be a follower, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to, um, to lead, and that's what we're going to look at today. But, um, but the stronger the foundation is, the stronger the building is. And so it's important to take a step back. So we looked at what it means to be a worshiper. You know, being a worshiper is really the beginning point for all of faith. God tells us that he loves us. He loves us, he loves us, he loves us. And if you're here today, I want you to know that God loves you. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. In fact, there is nothing that you can ever do that will separate you from the love of God. That's what Paul writes. It's scriptural, that his love encompasses us. It's all around us all the time. And when we learn to acknowledge that love, and we say, God, I understand you love us, and we start loving God back, and we start telling God that we love him, that's the beginning point for worship. We turn into worshipers. And worship is nothing more than telling God that we love him. That's what we sing about. And, uh, and, and it ushers in his presence. And then we looked at not just being a worshiper, but learning to be a follower. If we stop at worship, which some people do, and it's great to be a worshiper of God, but if you stop there, your walk with God will largely be unfulfilled and uh, will fall flat in your life. So we learn we not only need to be a worshiper, we need to be a follower. Now, a follower moves from where they're at to follow something, like the wise men followed the star. And, and we understood that if we're going to follow Jesus, sometimes we need to leave things of this world behind us. Things that get in our way. The sin that so easily entangles us. Hebrews 12.1 Let us throw off everything that hinders us and sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And so we understand if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, that we need to learn to leave those things and to follow after Christ and, and to put that, um, I, I guess, uh, at the forefront of everything that we do. Then we looked at taking one more step into being a disciple. You know, we call this the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Make dis well, what does that mean to, to make a disciple? What does that mean to be a disciple? Does that mean like we can just take discipline and we can move forward? Well, that's probably part of it. Uh, does it mean that we're just dedicated to following Christ? That's part of it. But, um, but discipleship is really about a lifelong pursuit. Jesus said it's like a builder that builds a building. He counts the cost ahead of time. 
and he plans to follow through. And when you're a builder and you don't follow through, Jesus even said, you know, everyone else makes fun of you for it because you did not count the cost. And we understood that discipleship is really a lifelong commitment, that we count the cost and we make the long-term decision that we're going to follow Jesus no matter what. No matter what comes our way, no matter what hardships, no matter what difficulties, no matter, um, no matter what, uh, you know, what mountains we have to climb or what valleys we have to walk through, we will follow Christ. It's a, long, uh, it's a lifelong journey. And so last week we looked at one idea that will make that journey that lifelong journey easier, and that is learning to belong. That is the church, the power of the church, the power of you and I together. It helps us in life's journey of following Christ. And, and God gave us four illustrations kind of about the church um, that helps make our journey easier. He says that we're like a brick being built in God's temple. See, we're strong when we're together. When we're by ourselves, we're just a heavy loaf on the ground somewhere. But when God cements us together and he builds us into his temple, we find strong, uh, strength and stability. He says, you know, that we can have abundant life through the church. That you and I are like a vine grafted into, um, I'm sorry, we're a branch grafted into the vine. That when we're grafted in, that we bear fruit and we bear much fruit. He also says that we're like a member of the body. You and I are like a limb that when attached to the body that we find purpose and we find unity. And then lastly, my favorite way that God says the church is like, he says we are all like children in the family of God. We all find acceptance. We all find love. We all find um, uh, community in church. And that's what I love about our church is it feels like family. We're creating family church, not just like literally like, oh, hey, my sister's over here, my brother's over here, and, and we're in Rogers, so we have a lot of that, right? Uh, so everyone's related to everyone. It really is kind of a family church. But beyond that, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are family. I know, I know at the Olive Garden, they treat you like family, right? Until your money runs out, right? And then you're out the door. And I'm so glad that church is not like that. Uh, let me say this. I, say, I said it before, I say it again. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor or you're shy or extroverted um, or you, uh, you, you, know, you, you do a lot of work or you, you, know, you can't because you're outside. It doesn't matter. If your father in heaven is, Jesus, is God and, and, and Jesus and you've accepted him, you know what? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the same father, so we're all part of the same family. And, uh, and that's what we strive for to make our church feel like and to be like. In fact, that's why we have the big sign out there in the foyer, Welcome Home. Okay? It's not because I got that sale or that sign on clearance. You know? It's not because it was on sale at the garage sale. It's, it's purposeful. Because that's, the, that's the, the, the feeling that we want you to have when you walk through our doors. So today I want to wrap up our series a little bit. And I want to talk about learning to be a leader. And um, 
Uh, really, I've entitled my sermon today, Learning to Be a Servant. Because if you want to be a leader, if you want to learn uh, leadership qualities, if you want to be in charge, the Bible says the best way to do that is to be a servant. Thank you. i got a couple amens. But really, you know, ask my leaders in this church. Ask our deacons how much serving they're doing right now. Right? They're probably tired of serving. Right? We have been serving for, for months doing this rebuild. We're tired of serving. Right? And that's a little bit true. But leadership in the body of Christ um, is, is all about serving. Who can serve the most? Who can do the most? And Jesus was, of course, the greatest example of that. He lived humbly, and he served those people around him. And so today I want to talk to you about learning to be a servant leader. Learning to be a servant. And really, I think that's the last step in our, our, our walk with Christ. Because um, God, God saved us, right? He saved us. You ever ask why God saved us? What's the purpose of that? Well, the answer to that unfolds in Ephesians chapter 2. And that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. Um, and before we get to Ephesians chapter 2, let me give you a pretext. In Ephesians chapter 1, um, Paul is writing about the supremacy of God. And he's saying, God is so awesome. God is so big. God is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And because of that, he has all authority in heaven and on earth and, you know, for all time. And he's talking about the supremacy, how everything is uh, under his feet. Everything is under his command. And so he's talking about the power of the resurrected Christ in Ephesians chapter 1. And then he shifts his focus in Ephesians chapter 2, and that's where I'm going to begin reading today. He shifts his focus to you, and he says, But as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. And we're going to stop there to look at my first concept. I have three concepts that will help us lead. The first concept that I want to look at today is the fact that you were dead. You were dead. This is extreme stark contrast to the resurrected Christ that Paul is outlining in Ephesians chapter 1. And so Paul goes from this great big grandeur vision of who Jesus is, who Christ is in Ephesians 1, saying he's all-powerful, he has all things under his feet, all things under his control. He's a resurrected, living forever Christ. But as for us, we're dead. Stark contrast. And, and, and he's switching total gears there. And it's significant because oftentimes you and I don't consider ourselves dead. Right? Maybe an ex-boyfriend or an ex-wife or something like that, right? They're dead to me. But you and I, we don't consider ourselves dead. Right? We have pulses. Right, that tell us that we're alive. In fact, um, uh, first aid responders, the very first thing they do, I think, I was taught when I did CPR, man, you look for breathing, you look for a pulse, you look to check the status. That's how you tell if something is living or not. You know, dead people have no pulses. They have no hearts. 
They have no emotion. Um, I will share a college story with you. I was in my junior year of college, and um, I had a cousin, same age, but he got married uh, that summer, and so he could not, no longer live in the dorms. He had to live uh, just, just past campus um, down the hill, and they had a trailer park there for married housing. And so all the married students lived there. And so all the single people lived up in the dorms, you know, all the married people lived, lived in the married housing quarters. Um, but in that married housing uh, quarters, there's a lot of little kids. And so I used to go down and visit my cousin, and we were like the biggest kids on the playground down there. And so we would go out and we would play wiffle ball and we would play kickball with all these eight and 10 year olds. And so, so we would go out there and just have fun. And we were like, we're like, okay, I'm the pitcher, you know. Why are you the pitcher? Because I'm three feet taller than the rest of you guys, you know. <laughs> like, that's why, you know. It, it was great when we played basketball. But, um, <laughs> but no, we were like the biggest kids on the playground. We, we, we'd all get together. And so one day we're out there, and it's, it's like it's hot out, and we're playing a game and all of this stuff, and we're just having fun with the neighborhood kids. And some kid comes up to us. He's like, he's like hey, guys, there's a dead possum over here. So what do you think this like group of 10, 15, uh, year old, 8 to 10-year-olds go? We're like, hey, let's go check out the dead possum, right? So we're all over there, and we're all gathered around. And so um, all these, we're all just staring at this dead possum there. And it's just laying there on the side of the road. And uh, so my cousin and I were like, hey, hey, I don't think he's dead, right? Ha haven't you kids heard that, that uh, the phrase playing possum? Like when they're scared, they just faint. And, um, and they act like they're dead, but they're really not dead. And so now all these kids are buying into our, our line here. You know, they're all like in throats. So, so my cousin gets this big stick. He's like, he's, like, he's like, kids, gather around. He's like, I'm going to whap this thing with this stick to see if it's alive or dead. Now, we knew it was dead, but we're toying with the kids a little bit. And so, um, so he hit this thing as, as hard as he could. I mean, he whapped it hard. And when he did that, I roared out, it's alive, it's alive. And all these kids went running everywhere, you know. And uh, yeah, this is what we did in college, yes. <laughs> yes, great to see my, my tuition money paying off. Uh, but we had a lot of fun, but, but uh, no, no, that possum really was dead. <laughs> he wasn't going anywhere that day. But when you poke dead things, they don't move. They, there's no life in them. Um, dead things, they rot. They smell. In fact, um, Jane and I drive down the road in our Jeep sometimes, and uh, yeah, it, you can tell that dead things smell. They stink. They rot. Um, and so most people don't associate themselves with lifeless, dead, rotting, smelling things. Do you? I don't feel that way about myself. But Paul is saying that we were dead. In fact, he's drawing from an Old Testament uh, imagery in the Old Testament. Uh, it was abhorrible to be around dead things or to even touch a dead thing. According to uh, Jewish um, Levitical law there, that if you were to touch something that was dead, that you too would be made ceremoniously unclean. And you would have to go through purification processes to cleanse yourself from that. And so it was not good to be around dead things. And so Paul is drawing to that audience saying, hey, you understand 
how bad dead things are. And it's not good to be around them. It's not even good to touch them. But now he's saying, you were dead. That's who we were. We were the abhorrible things. We were the smelly things. We were the rotten things. Paul's saying that we were the bad ones because uh, we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. And it's hard for us to understand that because a lot of times we don't think ourselves as being bad. Right? The bad people, where are the bad people? The bad people are always out there. Right? Where do we tell our kids? Bad people are out there. Good people are in here. That's why we have houses that we lock the doors and we put up security cameras and we call on our two uh, cousins that we love, Smith and Wesson, to help us protect our, our houses, right? And um, I knew I'd get an amen on that one. Uh, and so, so, so we always think, like, okay, we're good in here, we're safe in here, the bad people are out there. That's why we don't talk to strangers, because there's bad people out there. That's why, kids, you shouldn't eat candy given to you by strangers. Because bad people do bad things to candy, um, and then they give them to you. That's why we don't let uh, people touch you in uncomfortable ways, because there's bad people out there that want to do bad things to our kids. And we always think that bad people are always out there roaming around looking for bad things to do. And we never totally understand that Paul is calling us, like, bad. And this is one of those Christian concepts that oftentimes we misplace. We're not bad because of the things we do. The things we do are just symptomatic of us already being bad. If that makes any sense. It's weird. The things that we do do not make us bad. See, if we fall into that line of thinking, then what happens is, is then we try to do good. And we think that if our good outweighs our bad, then we'll be good enough. Good enough for heaven. But that's not what Paul is really saying here. Paul says this. He says, you are um, dead in your sins and your transgressions. But then he goes on to make his point stick. He says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. So he said, he said, that's who we used to be. We used to be dead. We used to be uh, part of this spirit that led us into disobedience. Verse 3 says, all of us, right? Turn to your neighbor and say, all of us. All right, thank you for the, the slow goers today. You guys were unsure if you wanted to do that or not, right? All of us, that includes you and me and everyone else sitting around us, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, right? That's who we all were, dead in our sins and our transgressions, and so because of this, Paul says, like the rest, like everybody else uh, on the planet, we were, uh, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
So by our very nature, that's who we are. Did you guys know today that you are naughty by nature? Right? See, you guys like what I did there. All you 80s kids, right? Right? We're, we're evil by nature. And so, so many times we misinterpret Scripture a little bit, and we think, oh, no, it's our sin that makes us bad. Um, no, sin is just a symptom of us already having a hole where we're not good in God's sight. So because of this, um, you know what, let me, let, me, let me do this. Let me just prove this point. If you don't believe that we're, we're inherently bad. How many of you guys ever raised kids? How did you guys know I was going there? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm living this right now. Right? You have, if you remember those toddler ages, you know, why did you draw on the wall with permanent marker? Why? Because you're bad in there somewhere. All oh, my kids are good. Yeah, but they're bad too. Right? Uh, why did you steal your brother's toy? Right? Why did you punch your sister? Why did you smash your donut into the carpet instead of eating it? Right? And the list could go on and on and on. In fact, I joke, I think that this is, this is the, the day of a mother. This is a total day. I have narrowed it down into three concise, simplistic phrases. This is the life of a mother. All you do is you go around and you say three phrases. Don't do that. Don't touch that. And don't eat that. Right? That's the role of a mother. Don't do that. Don't touch that. Don't eat that. Right? I've been to kids' camp. That's your role as a counselor. Don't touch it. Don't do that. Don't eat that. Right? And it's like kids just do these things. Right? It's in us. And we're not better as adults. We still have to do, remind ourselves, hey, don't say that. Don't touch that. Don't eat that. Right? That's the one I struggle with. says, uh, Paul says, we gratify every craving of our flesh. Every craving of our flesh. See, we are sinners. And what Paul is saying here by calling us dead is that you and I are spiritually bankrupt. When we go down to uh, the first bank of heaven and we check out our spirituality account, we were dead. We were found owing. We had nothing. No help of self-preservation, no help of renewal, no help of redemption. It's so bad that you and I were like a dead, rotting corpse. Paul says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's the bottom line. That's who we're. So that's our first concept to understanding how to be a servant. We have to understand where we came from. This is who we were. But it doesn't stop there. And thank God it doesn't stop there. Because there's a second concept that you can be made alive. You can be made alive. Paul's saying you were dead, that is true. But guess what? Because of Jesus, dead things can be made alive again. Praise God. Hallelujah. And it's not because of the things that we've done. It's because of grace. Let's look at verse 4. But 
because of his great love for us. Right? Because, because of his love for us. That love that, that, that never ends. That love that reaches to us while we're still sinners. It says, because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. It's by grace that God works in our lives. See, we were once dead, but we could be made alive. And God, verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and exceeded us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches, incomparable riches of all his blessings up there in heaven. Right? Hallelujah, I'm saved. God's going to now give me incomparable blessings. Right? I've hit the spiritual lotto. That's what Christianity is all about. Right? Just being blessed and God just heaping us all on it. My number's been called. But Paul doesn't write that. Paul says God is going to give us the incomparable riches of his divine health care system. Hallelujah, I need that right now in my life. No more HMOs or PPOs or out-of-pocket expenses or getting pre-approvals for procedures. No deductibles, um, no uh, screenings. Um, I hate going to a new doctor and filling out 40 pages of my history and all of that stuff, you know. No uh, waiting in the waiting room. Hallelujah, you and I can go to the great physician, have instantaneous healing. And while that's true, that's not what Paul says here. <laughs> Paul says that he's going to give us the incomparable riches of something far greater than all of those. It's of his grace. His grace. And the way that he does that is it's expressed to us in Christ Jesus. His grace is shown to us through the person of Jesus. For it is by grace that we've been saved through faith. This is not from ourselves. It's a gift of God. So that it's not by works, so that no one can boast. We are products of God's grace. The greatest gift that he could ever give to dead people, to people like you and me, is his grace. To sum it up, Paul's saying, you were dead and sins and transgressions. Your sin doesn't make you bad. You were bad inerrantly, but because of that, uh, because of that sin, you were deserving of God's wrath, his full wrath, just like everyone else that ever walked the earth. But God, because he is loving, because he is abounding in mercy, because God is full of grace, because he, he, he purchased our sin and our transgressions on a cross, he was able to redeem us and restore us and deliver us. And while we were dead and stuck in the miry clay of our sins and our transgressions, God rescues us, he pulls us out, he sets our feet on solid ground. He loves us enough to save us and make us alive through him. 
but to what ends? Why does God do that? Because God needs worshipers? I mean, what is God's end game here? What is my purpose? Some of you ask that. What is my purpose? I'm trying to find out what God has for me. In fact, a lot of Christians in our journey, we ask that. We get to that point where we're worshipers and we, we worship God and we love worship. And then we follow God and we, we become disciples and we're dedicated. But in that process somewhere, we start asking, what is my purpose? What, what does God have for me? God saved me for a reason. And Paul unveils it to us in verse 10. He says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are, this is my third concept, you are God's handiwork and you have a purpose. You're God's handiwork and you have a purpose. Handiwork implies craftsmanship. It's better when you built something with your own two hands. It didn't come off of a, uh, uh, it didn't come out of a mold or off of an assembly line. It was handcrafted. And in our world of eight billion plus people, I want you to know that you are unique. There is no one like you. You are one of a kind, created by the craftsman, handcrafted. You are priceless in his sight. God has created you, and he's working on you. And just like any craftsman, they give meticulous detail to the product. They're not happy until it is perfect. You ever asked yourself, why I am the way that I am? I do. I say, why am I so handsome? <laughs> I say, God, it's a curse sometimes, right, to be this good looking, right? Why am I so stubborn? Why do I get angry so quick? Why do I have trouble stepping out in faith? Why do I have to, you know, have everything such a certain way? Why am I the way that I am? How come I'm so verbal and have to talk all the time? It gets me in trouble. How come I'm so quiet and shy? I wish I was more like the guy that talked all the time. Right? How come I'm, I don't know, just how come I am the way that I am? I'll tell you, the, you are the way that you are because God made you that way. He handcrafted you that way. So when you have something that's built into you, God made you that way. And our problem a lot of times in life is we don't like the things about ourselves. And we say, man, God, I wish I could change this about myself. I wish I could change my stubborn streak. I wish I could change, um, you know, my, my lack of faith. Or, you know... I, I wish I could change my overness of faith and be a little bit more protecting, a little bit more skeptical. I always wish I could be a little bit different than who I am. But sometimes we have to realize that God created us that way, maybe for purpose. See, maybe we have to be a little bit 
stubborn or a little bit skeptical so we can be like Thomas, so we can verify the miracle. Maybe we have to be a little bit um, outspoken so that we can be like Paul or be like Peter that preached the gospel. Sometimes, um, sometimes we have to be stubborn because God uses that. I knew three Jewish kids that had to be a little stubborn when sticking up for what they believed in against a, a tyrannical um, you know, king that said, I'm going to place an idol there. Maybe your stubbornness is a good thing. And so a lot of times I, I think we, we look at ourselves and we look at those things that are deep within us and we say, God, why? Why? I don't like this about myself. When really what we need to be asking is, God, why, do you, why am I like this? What is your purpose for me? How can I use this to further your message or further your gospel? Sometimes stubbornness is a good thing. Sometimes, and I, I joke, you know, on all my report cards, you know, talks too much. Maybe talking too much is a good thing down the road. Right? I do it for a living. Right? See, why are we the way we are? Because God has created us that way for purpose. There is a purpose. And God has shaped you, and he shaped you for service in his, king, his kingdom. We are all God's workmanship. And we're created. Created means that you have certain abilities, certain capabilities, and a necessary capacity to do good works. God has created us with the ability to do good works. The capacity to do them. And he shaped each and every single one of us to do that um, in only a way that we can do that. Because God has built me drastically different than he's built you. I'm guessing. Right? Some of you just aren't as handsome as I am. I'm sorry. All right? I apologize for that. Some of you are way more handsome. You blow me out of the water. Say, at least I have hair. Right? Yeah. Throw that in my face when you come to church. You know, a few years ago, I was uh, working on my car. And um, I was, uh, I, I'm not a mechanic. Oh, Lord, I'm not a mechanic. My wife knows I'm not a mechanic. Um, but I try. But I try. I'm a man, so I think I'm a mechanic, right? You guys know any men like that, right? Not an electrician, but I think I, I play one. I can do it, right? So I'm out there, and I'm like, I, I need to change the brakes and rotors on my, one of my vehicles, and I'm like, I, I can do this. On, I know the concepts. Of, I've changed brakes before. I've changed rotors before. Until um, I got to that point where I have the tires off and I'm about ready to pull the rotor there. And you guys know it's like this big, flat, round, donut-looking thing. See, I compare everything to food. That's how I know. So it goes on your wheel. And, um, and that thing is like fused in there. I cannot get that rotor thing off for the life of me. And so... Um, so I do only what I know to do and to grab a hammer and start banging on it, right? Because that thing's got to come off, right? That thing's got to come, there ain't no way around it. So I grab this little sledge, and I mean, I am hitting this thing to try to jar this thing loose, and it is just not coming loose. And so that's when I call a real mechanic. <laughs> uh, so I called my, my brother-in-law, Devin, and Devin lent me um, this special tool. And I have a picture of it here. 
this is, um, I don't even know the real name of this thing. Okay, okay there's, there's a mechanic in the house. But this helps you pull that rotor off. And so you hook it in there, and then you apply tension, um, that, that middle, uh, th yeah, it's threaded in there, so it puts pressure on there, and in theory, it puts so much pressure in there that that pulls off. Now, if that still doesn't get it, then you have to bring out the, the heat and the torch and all that stuff. So we didn't have to go that far, thank God. But, but, but my illustration is, is this piece of machinery, who I don't even know the name of it. You do, I do not. But this was designed for that purpose, to make that job doable. Now, outside of that job, I have no purpose for this thing. If I owned that, it would sit in the corner of my garage for years and years and years. But it was created for purpose. And in that moment, it becomes invaluable. Because it was created to do a job that no other tool could do. And I think about that in the kingdom of God. We were created to do good works. And there is a work out there that God has created you specifically for. And you could probably do it better than, than anyone else around you. Because God has used you in that way. And I, if you're saying, well, I, maybe I haven't found it yet. Maybe you haven't. Because maybe you're, it's not the right time. In the right time, God will use you in the way that he has created you for. You have specific purpose in Christ Jesus. And that's really the last stage in following Christ as a believer. So we learn to be a worshiper. We learn to be a, um, a follower. We learn to be a disciple. We learn to be a member. And lastly, we learn to be a servant. Well, how do we be a servant? We be a servant by finding out that God's created us to do good works. And then we go out and we do them. That's why we're here. That's what God has done for us. I want you to know today, church, that as we wrap this up, God has created you. You are God's handiwork. So I don't care what lie the devil has whispered in your ear that you're worthless, that you're not valuable, that you can't do anything, that this job isn't right for you. All of those things are rubbish and garbage compared to what God says about you. God says you are his handiwork, specially crafted to do good works, to do good works. Can I leave you with one more verse that Jesus said? And this is found um, in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Amen. Don't miss the formula there. The formula, how do people on the outside, how do people that were dead in their sins and transgressions glorify their Father in heaven? When they see your good deeds. When they see your good deeds.
that's spoken by the words of Jesus. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me today? And uh, we're just going to do a soft closing to, today. Uh, Lord, I just feel like, God, you've spoken to us such a powerful message about who we are, who we are in you. God, I'm so thankful that, that once we were far off, once we were sinners, God, once we didn't know you, but the moment that we accepted you into our lives, Lord, everything changed. And Lord, today there might be someone in, in the house today, God, that's maybe never made that decision, or maybe they're, they're struggling in that decision, and maybe they're saying, that's me, man, I just, I, I, I've been doing my own thing, and I, I feel dead in, in sins and transgressions. I've never had that alive moment. I've never accepted Jesus. Lord, today would your spirit speak to us. Lord, would you uh, come into our lives. Lord, we invite you. Lord, would you forgive us of our sins? Would we say, God, I'm sorry for the things I've committed. Sorry for the wrong things. Come into my life. God, give me life. Lord, today I pray for every person, God, who might be struggling with identity, might be struggling with purpose, might be struggling finding their way. God, what am I here for? What am I supposed to do? Maybe they're here today and they believe the lies of the enemy that says you're worthless, you're meaningless, that you can't do anything good. Maybe we have ourselves in a state of self-critiquing. We're saying, God, why? Why did you make me this way? Why do I struggle this way? How come I can't overcome this? God, help us to realize that we are your handiwork. God, that we are handcrafted by God himself. And we're created for purpose, to do good works. So now, Lord, today, I pray that as we go our separate ways, God, that we would have a new, a new sense of identity, a new sense of purpose, that when we leave this place today, God, that we would put it into action, God, that we would look for opportunities to do good in this world, to do good so that others might turn their attention towards heaven and praise our Father above. Now, Lord, I just commit this to you today, and I pray this in your name. Amen. 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 Church, today you're officially dismissed. Go and God's graces, share some fellowship one with another, but above all else, do good. Do good works. God bless you today.